Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan Cole. And I'm Akiko Taramoto. at you from Pasadena once more. This time, uh, it's Akiko's turn to interview me. If you heard our last episode, I got to interview Akiko, and I actually did learn a a few new things, things that I didn't know about how she uh, started and continued the violin, how and why. Um, So this time, tables are turned, and uh, she'll get to interview me, figure out how I became her sometime stand partner anyway. What do you want to ask me? Where should we start? Uh, well, I guess we started at the very beginning with me last time, so we can begin there with you. Well, what how kind of beginning? How did you start? How, well, what's or or even what's what's your background? What's your family background? Well, my family is it's more musical than most, or at least I should say that more of us play instruments maybe than most. I don't know how musical we are, but um, <laughs> they don't always go together. It's true. No, I, I my my family is musical. Um, <laughs> So I, I'm from Kentucky originally, Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, I was there. My family was there because my dad was the flute teacher at the University of Kentucky there, Wildcats, go Big Blue. My parents tell me that because most of their friends, you know, as happens with us, even now we can see most of their friends were musicians, the people that they worked with became the people they hung out with. So when I was growing up, pretty much everybody that came by the house would be a musician of some sort and so I'd, I'd see a lot of instruments coming and going and so eventually I guess by the time I was two or three you know I asked what my instrument was and you know they they played that question off as long as they could I guess but by the time I was four they figured I should start on something and pretty much at that age violin and piano as we know from our own kids those are basically the choices at that age most of the other instruments are too heavy or to uh they require lung power or something like that. So Oh, there's always recorder. That's true. <laughs> yeah. You can but yeah. I guess, you know, some people have taken recorder pretty far, made a career out of it. We were just talking about Franz Bruggen the other day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I meant as a conduit to other wind instruments, but sure, you know, recorder in and of itself is yeah. <laughs> a legitimate career path. Um so yeah, violin was a good choice and um they later, they've gone back to say from time to time that they especially didn't want me to play a woodwind or brass instrument um, because they didn't want me ever to have to deal with marching band, which really means they didn't want to deal with marching band. And uh, in some parts of the country and some parts of the world, uh, marching band might not be a big thing. But in the Midwest, so many football games, basketball games, if you play one of those instruments, you will get sucked into the marching band culture and middle school and high school and if you're if your school is a big sports school or a big band school um, it can really take over your life and it doesn't do a whole lot of favors for your playing um, my mom in particular taught almost exclusively middle school and high school flute students my mom's a flutist also and uh, so those kids you know during football season especially lessons were basically a, a no-go they'd come in week after week saying well I didn't really have a chance to practice and you know, their flute got rained on and rusted and just a, a disaster. So they didn't want that. Although I mean, some people have a great experience doing it. It's, it's a big part of their 
high school life so oh it's so much fun depends I mean, on what your goals are i guess yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so yeah I, I like i say i they went back later and said this i'm not sure that they were thinking of high school me necessarily when they started four-year-old me on the violin uh no i mean my friends who did marching band it was the time of their lives and yeah we didn't really have orchestra gatherings or trips like that right um that's a, a downside to being a string player the gatherings are pretty pretty tame <laughs> so you so you began violin at what age was it you said i was four was, you were four and um and and which system did you start with did you it was pretty straight suzuki and it's so that would have been the year 1982 and i don't know at what point Suzuki really hit the the national you know sort of became more of a craze maybe it already was at that point I don't know that that seems pretty early to me but I think the reason that it worked there in Lexington was the the Midwest contains a number of places where people teachers who had gone to Japan to work with Suzuki personally and some of his first um, students some of those people a lot of them ended up settling in the Midwest for whatever reason. So there are real enclaves in Minnesota and Ohio and Indiana, Wisconsin, um, a lot of big Suzuki student camps and even teacher training camps going on there. So Lexington ended up having a disproportionately high number of Suzuki teachers and a really healthy program. So that when I started, you know, I had a, a big class of people with me um, who all got to play the little Cracker Jack boxes with the rulers taped to them in group class. And um, yeah, some of those people I stayed, uh, you know, current, I was their fellow student uh, all the way through high school, basically. Is there anybody we still know now? Was Zach Brock in there? Um, Zach Brock, who is a great jazz violinist and who we just played with this past summer at our chamber festival in Lexington. He would, I can't remember if he started Suzuki or not. I, I have a feeling everybody did back then in in Lexington, um, but we always had different teachers, but but a similar similar upbringing. I'm trying to think if there was anybody else still playing professionally. Well, Alyssa Park. Oh, she started in your same program. Um, we were not. You know, she's a few years older than me, so I never, I would never see her, and I I can't remember if she started. Suzuki or not um but she was always around it was like her name was sort of invoked as the but she know. was in Lexington yeah what about um Dan Hahn oh Dan Hahn who's in <laughs> the Philadelphia Orchestra now and he he and Alyssa were more similar I would say than either of them was to me because they both eventually went up to Cincinnati to take lessons with a uh, Kurt Sossman's house the you know the the Dorothy DeLay protege and her, colleague her reach so. extended yeah, exactly. Far we, south. For for much more on Miss Delay, make sure you check out the last episode <laughs> where we talk with Akiko about her. Um, so that's interesting. I, did, I didn't realize. I mean, Lexington is a relatively small area, but yeah, um, a lot of serious accomplished violinists came out of of your hometown, which is kind of yeah. crazy. I think it was a fertile time for that. You know, there was just so much enthusiasm around Suzuki then, and the pendulum goes back and forth on Suzuki. I think and. It seems like now it's uh, because so many people have attacked the Suzuki system over the years. I feel like a Suzuki's in a good place now. You're sort of uh, not in a defensive 
stance, but I feel like people who believe in the good things that Suzuki has to offer are very enthusiastic about it now. So it seems as healthy as ever. And, you know, we're seeing that here in Pasadena now. There are a ton of kids and, right. and Hannah's Our group. own child. Yeah. Um, so I did group classes. I, I forget how long it was exclusively group. Um, but I, I started with just the group lessons and then would have the half hour lessons um, with my teacher, Donna Weehy, after that. And she was just great with kids. I know at, at her high point, she had 80 students each week. You know, almost all those half hour lessons, but a few hour lessons. But that's even at half hours, that's a full 40 hours of teaching a week. So that's that's a lot of kids and a lot of wow. people to keep straight. Yeah, that's an accomplishment for sure. Yeah. And she, you know, she, we were talking about Miss Delay in the last episode, you know, keeping you waiting hours. And this, of course, was the, the very opposite because Mrs. Weehy knew she had to deal with parents for whom the violin lessons were maybe the sixth or seventh priority in a lot of cases so you know it was like clockwork and we uh moved through the suzuki books as as we could it's slow going in the beginning and again we're being reminded of that now with hana who's four um but you actually did make it through all the suzuki books eventually i did yeah hardly anybody does that now because it's really not you know i wouldn't recommend it and i think i bailed at book five or something yeah because at that point so the the quick overview is i spent from age four to ten in suzuki and and all with that same uh, great teacher and so in that time we did all 10 suzuki books although books nine and ten are simply one mozart concerto each Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, you know, in fact, all the Suzuki books are really, they're either folk tunes that were arranged by Suzuki back in the day, or you know, because he studied in Germany, most of the rest of it is German and Italian violin pieces that he either slightly arranged or just left as is, but put bowings and fingerings with. And he arranged them in a certain order that he thought would teach the concepts in the, in the right order and we would supplement a little bit you know we'd play some outside pieces that you you know you were saying you learned Kabalevsky concerto and I learned Kabalevsky concerto around that same time with with Mrs. Weehy um and that's not in the Suzuki that was after Mozart or well we I can't exactly remember the order it would have been around the same time that I learned those Mozart concertos I mean the whole three and four then uh four and five so book nine is the fifth concerto book 10 is the fourth concerto well, that's, that's, wow. Okay, so you learned those very early. Yeah, I mean, when I was nine and ten. And, and it's weird to learn those pieces, I think, in the Suzuki method. Well, and so when we say that, what's what's Suzuki really? Uh, the big concept is that you're supposed to learn to play an instrument like you would learn um, to talk. So he calls it the mother tongue method. So it should be natural it's just something you do you know you hear other people do it you see other people do it and so you just imitate so there's a ton of it started out as records and then i think by the by the time i was done it was tapes not yet cds but records of the suzuki books being performed and so those were just on loop all day <laughs> and in the I'm house looking, in looking the car. forward to that with our kids <laughs> yeah well they have newer recordings now actually the, those re- the recordings i listened to when i was growing up i since learned that it was david cerrone playing um now you can choose between him and william prusel and who knows who else there there's some other other choices but yeah you know from those you learn great tone great pitch and the right 
note lengths. It's just, it's a lot of stuff then that you don't have to go over in the lessons if you've got that really in your ear. And lots of games, you know, group lessons and, and camps were all about games. You had to imitate this and that. And it was fun. It was the teacher's job to keep it fun. Wow. So this is extremely thorough start that you had to playing the violin. Extremely methodical. <laughs> and I think that's, I, I, I would say, maybe you'd agree or not, that it's probably carried into your current approach to practice and, and, and learning and teaching. Well, it's weird. I, at the time... Well, at the time I was a kid, so I wouldn't have cared one way or the other. But I think back then it just seemed, I just did what I was told, which I think appealed to my personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wasn't, I didn't know why, and I wasn't necessarily supposed to know why. Once I was nine when I started practicing without my parents, because until then, and I don't know if it was this way for you, did your mom always practice with you? I mean, at a certain point not anymore right i mean i think maybe the point at which you're getting dropped off at your lesson right it's also the point at which you start practicing alone right so i was nine i remember where i had to i wasn't practicing with my mom anymore because she had always been the one it was just her and her flute and she'd either play along with me or ask me to play after her or you know once once i could read a little music then she wouldn't need to play for me um but when I was nine, yeah, I had a notebook and I had to write things down. Then I started getting a little more interested. So you kept your own practice journal, even at a young age? That was the rule, yeah. If, because at that point, I was really chafing to do it by myself. I didn't want parents around and want my mom practicing with me. So the deal was then that I had to write down everything I did so that they could take a look at it after. And did you keep that? You kind of kept, kept that into adult age, right? Um, I would go on and off with that. But yeah, the concept of it I've definitely carried around, but I haven't been as great as I should have been. But that's interesting. I'm not sure how many people I know, and certainly not myself, did such a thing. I mean, I don't remember ever doing that, even as a kid. Maybe, of course, that that wasn't how it was set up for me as, you know, as an incentive to practice alone or as a reward for practicing alone. Um, yeah. But um, But as an adult, certainly I... And I think we've talked about how our approaches to to practicing are pretty different. But it's, yeah, it's interesting that that stayed with you all those years. Yeah, I I am grateful for having had that directive that I had to write it down. In the beginning, I think it was supposed to be proof that I'd actually <laughs> spent the time. And so I went, you know, and I was encouraged to write down how long I did this and that. And so that, that did surprise me. I, I never liked to practice very much. And so at the, at that time, you know, age nine, I was probably doing about an hour of practice a day. And by the time I went to Curtis at age 18, that had gone up to two hours only, but, but never more than that. But writing down how much time I spent on everything, it, it did give me a sense that I should be getting things done quickly. I, I don't know who, I, see. I don't know how I decided that or maybe, maybe, one of my teachers just said, okay, well, if you're going to be that lazy and only practice for an hour or an hour and a half or whatever it is, then you better get a lot done. And so you need to write down what you're doing. Well, I would imagine that probably eliminates the kind of loafing, loafing around aspect that <laughs> does, does infiltrate practice time a lot of Yeah, it, it can. I, there, there was still a lot of that too. I mean, when you're a kid, you go through so many different phases and sometimes you just, because your parents want you to do it, you don't want to do it then. So that there's all of that comes into play. The, the Suzuki thing is set up so that you're always around other 
kids playing the same songs, but, and you've had that, but with sort of big time pieces and, and real careers. Probably <laughs> at stake. my memories of being around, well, of course I was always around other students, but yeah, my memory is that it was like a master classes when you're playing the major concertos. Yeah, I mean, these were just playthroughs. I mean, from age four to 10, when I left Suzuki once, I don't know if it was once a week or once a month or something like that. You know, the older kids can play all the songs. The younger kids drop out when it's a song they don't know. Yes, they were called songs. Um, (laughs) And everybody, you know, what song are you on? What song are you on? What book is that in? Book five? Oh, I'm in in book four. Um, (laughs) In your face. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Oh, and my parents were very careful i mean because they were professionals and because even you know my dad's dad had been a professional he was a flutist in the philadelphia orchestra so they were very careful yeah i I think because they knew how long the road was from (laughs) kid to potentially doing this for a living they really really didn't want me to get ahead of myself and ever think that i was better or they just it was nice i mean they they made sure that the whole uh concept of comparison was just off the table that's interesting so we had completely different experiences that way for sure i know that's always it's so funny to me too because my parents were musicians and i think most people listening would expect the opposite you know the the parents that were musicians would constantly be checking up and you know seeing and and i'm sure they're i'm sure they did to a certain extent it's just they kept it from Although me, if you if considered our respective races, you might not be as surprised. That's true. <laughs> I am as white as they come. The nice here, but <laughs> <laughs> listening and not seeing me. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I, and I, but there was conflict too. I mean, especially you get into the teenage years and boys, I think withdraw more and more. There aren't the loud conflicts that I hear about from girls so much, just wanting to be in my room with the door closed all the time. But you, you knew very early on that you wanted to go to conservatory. There wasn't there wasn't a real struggle in terms of what you were going to do with your life. Yeah, the final decision for that was not not a really tough one. But I wouldn't say. I guess the way it went was, by the time I was ten, and we were looking at, you know, who was going to be my next teacher because we were closing out the Suzuki books. It was obvious I needed a different teacher if I was going to keep doing this and. You know, even though I I wasn't passionate about it as a 10-year-old, I still, you know, I really liked playing and I knew that I could play. So there's no question that I was going to quit, but um, well, we at the risk of, teacher. of retroactively fostering spirit of competition. So was it very obvious? At, from what age, I guess, was it really obvious that you were just kind of playing circles around most of your classmates? Yeah, I, I know what you're asking. I pro- Probably around that time. Because honestly, uh, kids from age four to nine or four to eight, it's just the levels can be so different, you know, and some kids only start when they're seven. I mean, kids that go on to be professionals, they might start when they're seven. And, you know, so when they're eight, they're going to stink compared to (laughs) an eight year old that's been playing for four years, even if they're ultimately more talented. So, but probably, (laughs) yeah. Here's a double bass. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, by age nine or ten, you can edit that out. I think that's <laughs> no, we're keeping it. 
<laughs> We're interviewing double, double bass players. They can speak for themselves. <laughs> um, yeah, by, by age 10, I, I think there's some indication of, of where someone's going and especially the kind of repertoire that you're playing. But I do have, I, I think it's still on YouTube. I have a recital of mine from when I was seven playing, you know, some beginner Suzuki songs all the way up through what I would have been working on at that time, probably book three and four stuff. And, you know, it's fairly swashbuckling. It looks and sounds pretty messy. It's definitely confident. <laughs> but, I mean... Almost more important than yeah. anything else. I mean, I, at that I, age, I, Suzuki... The, the Suzuki method, you know, they want you to like performing or at least have it be a normal thing that you do. And you can definitely see that. I don't think my I face... Must, I must have missed that. I must have... Uh... <laughs> Must have ducked out of Suzuki before. (laughs) Yes, I was absent the day they taught enjoying performance. Okay. Well, but to watch this recital, I mean, you wouldn't think I was enjoying myself necessarily. I don't think my face ever changes expression. I don't think I move a muscle. But you don't remember a sense of dread? No, nothing like that. I mean, it was something. I, I think what I dreaded was having to dress up and put on a tie and having to be around a lot of adults that I didn't know very well. And I could tell that my parents were very excited. Like it was, it was definitely a big deal for them. And so in that sense, I just wanted to get through it because there were uncomfortable aspects of, you know, sort of being on display, but the actual playing was just the same thing that I was doing at home and in the lessons. And your, I, I assume your parents never expressed disapproval or, or no, they, dismay. The, the only disapproval was if I ever looked or acted you know, ungrateful or, or as if I weren't enjoying myself, or I I didn't have to look like I was enjoying myself exactly, but I really had to play the part that that was part of performing was talking to people politely, um, walking out, you know, not shuffling your feet and hanging your head It's just all the external things. Uh, I had to do those. I had to play the part and you know, that, that was fine. I understood that was part of the, the deal of performing. Yeah, that's interesting. But at the playing, never. No, they never said, oh, that wasn't your best. Or So at this point, you're, so your, grand, your grandpa was in the Philly Orchestra. Um, not, a, not anymore by the time you were, you were playing. Yeah, he had actually retired. He had switched to full-time teaching in Wisconsin to almost 20 years before I was born. I see. So, but, but he must have had kind of active contact with you about playing. Or once it became obvious that you were serious, then he had an influence in your life or yeah um i mean directly because we would spend time with him but also indirectly because i know my parents talked with him and tried to get his advice my my parents didn't go neither of them went to conservatory i mean they they majored in music in school studying with my grandpa but um you know i know they wanted his advice early on about potentially my going to conservatory because he had gone to curtis although it was a different little bit of a different place back then but and a Kate we did play together some um and this is something I've written about when when he died I wrote uh, a lot about him and my contact with him mostly I just knew him as a grandpa and I, there was no way I could have perspective about everything he had done and you know how important it would seem to me later on um I mean all I knew that was that he had been a really good flutist and knew and a lot about you never music. felt that he was evaluating you no, although again, I, I could sense a little bit similarly when I had to perform, I could tell that my parents were, this was important to them. And so when I would play, there was no question that I had to play for my grandparents anytime they visited or anytime we visited them. 
but I, I never felt like it was a test that he was evaluating me necessarily, just that I could tell it was important to my parents, and so I knew it was important. I, I don't know if everybody feels this way about grandparents, but you know, they're they're they come from a different time, and I, I felt like I couldn't always understand his expressions and <laughs> the way that he carried himself. It was very direct, and um, you talk was... about walking birds and wearing an onion on his belt, <laughs> like Grandpa Simpson. Yes. We a lot well. Yeah, he did remind me of Grandpa Simpson sometimes. <laughs> um, Sorry, the Simpsons. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to later episodes where we'll Nathan and I will discuss our initial meeting and how how much the Simpsons plays a part in our even our current relationship. But anyway, yes, the, I, I think we'll aside. we'll eventually whole episodes of Stand Partners for Life will just be Simpsons quotes. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so we'll we'll move forward with your career here. So. <laughs> You are now, say, how old? You're about well, ten, ten or eleven, and and at this point, I've, you know, I, I played the Kabelevsky first movement with the Louisville Orchestra. Wow, okay, kind of I, the, I, that I forgot. Yeah, that was my my debut for oh. winning some. Local was that when the newspaper articles were written about you? Um, yeah, our local paper had, yeah, always had some great headlines. Um, I don't know if they did one then. I think it was. Were you? More there was a was competition a that you won. I think that was, I forget just, what the occasion the right was people. for that. Maybe it was a, a competition run by the Louisville Orchestra. Oh, okay. That makes I, sense. I don't know. But yeah, that was the prize. To, and I shared it with a, a puppet um, <laughs> a puppet master. I'm serious. <laughs> puppet show then, Nathan Cole. Basically, yeah. It was totally a Nathan Spinal Cole Tap uh, moment. I, and that guy just passed away a year or two ago. I remember the seeing puppeteer? his name in a, yeah. I remember seeing his name in a headline. Like, where do I know that name? We, he oh. also we, he also won the competition. No, I mean he was oh, I see. You know, he was an adult. He was much older. So I'm sure this was some kind of kids concert. Um, uh, so okay. there were a lot. There were assorted acts. <laughs> one of which was the ten year old playing Kavalevsky, and uh, yeah, I'm sure they above that on the marquee there was the, <laughs> the great puppet guy. Um, but so. It, when I was then, yeah, 10, 11, switching, switched teachers to Dan Mason, and he was the teacher at the University of Kentucky. So my dad's colleague. And he had uh, been out here in LA um, studying with Heifetz back in the day. So he, he was in the classes after the the years where they were putting them on video. You know, if, if any of you have seen the, the great videos of the Heifetz studio classes, he came after that. But Similar, similar treatment. Nobody escaped Heifetz's ear and eye. Yeah. Did you want to talk a little bit about what that was like for studying with Dan? Dan's well, Dan's stories about studying with Heifetz, or yeah, and and studying with Dan, of course. After that, Um, uh, well, that that also could fill a whole episode. But basically, I met Dan. I didn't meet Heifetz, unfortunately. But sounds like they were very different personalities (laughs) as far as routine and habits. Um, And, you know, almost nobody was as fastidious and regimented as Heifetz. So um, anyone would be different from him to a certain extent. But you certainly, you know, you'd wear a coat and tie to lessons. You had to show up early to everything, even if it was an informal occasion like a party. So one of my favorite stories that Dan would tell was a Halloween party that Heifetz threw. And if he, if he said the party was at 6 p.m., then that meant that everybody had to, that was the latest time you could get in because you, you everybody had to drive up and be ready to 
drive in at six because at six the gate would open to his mansion and everybody had to, who was there drove in and if you weren't there then you never did get in so yeah he said at this one of these parties anyway everybody was milling around you know having drinks and snacks and oh where's Heifetz where we, we don't see him and all of a sudden it was not a costume party but all of a sudden this vampire appears Dracula um not speaking to anybody just kind of milling around obviously enjoying himself and then at the dramatic moment Heifetz whips off the the Dracula mask and reveals himself oh it's me and everybody had to act surprised okay I thought part of the story was that no one realized that this vampire was Heifetz no it was obviously okay that makes more sense but that that spirit I mean he so that was his sense of humor I mean he delighted in you know, being in charge, but also making people laugh. And, and he liked embarrassing people, not really dressing them down and making them feel terrible, but embarrassing them in little ways, making them play etudes and bowing patterns in front of other people on the spot. And in fact, he was annoyed if someone could do it right away. He wanted to be in control and show people that they had a lot to learn. Didn't he, uh, didn't he remove everybody's shoulder rest at some point and make everybody play without a shoulder rest on the spot was that a thing well i think everybody knew that you you couldn't use one in his class anyway so that was something everybody understood going in but there was one so franklin who used to be your colleague in the la philharmonic he was also in chicago and you're right in the chicago symphony before we were there um but he was in the heifetz class with my teacher dan mason and um he preferred to play with a shoulder rest most of the time so he just simply wouldn't use it in his in the Heifetz class, but he'd practice with it the rest of the week. <laughs> and he was the one, Dan said, who could always, he, he could do the things that Heifetz demanded right on the spot, and it made Heifetz so mad, so he just stopped asking him. <laughs> seems strange. Why would that make him mad? You'd think he'd be... Right. Well, that, that was just part of his or... personality, and he loved, he would give, he would fine people these incidental amounts, but if you forgot a pencil, he'd really sternly say that, you know, that's five cents, you know, drop it immediately into the into the jar. And then at the end of the year, he would take all the fines and buy the studio something like a new metronome or ah, interesting. box of pencils. Okay, um, so contrast that with what it was like studying with Dan yourself. Yeah, Dan was a wonderful teacher and, and a real free thinker. You know, he surely he had his own system, his own way of doing things, but he pretty carefully hid that from me. And for me, it was it was nice. I I really I felt like I was just again I was just doing what I was told, but at the same time I was gradually my ears my eyes were being opened to different ways of thinking about the music and, and hearing music and you know how music and storytelling would relate. And he knew that I loved TV shows and movies, so he would you know often talk about those. He'd if he'd hear me strumming something and he didn't know what it was, and I'd say, oh, it's from this TV show or this video game, and he'd say, oh, well, play it for me. And suddenly I'd get really nervous, even though I'd been playing it at home all the time. I'd be like, oh, really? He wants to hear it? That's that's interesting. So he'd always, he'd make you feel like this is like a violin playing music. It was like a constant thing. Like it's things you're absorbing outside your practice or your lessons and your... Yeah. And I think he was interested... (laughs) I think he'd never had somebody play those things before, so maybe he wanted to see what they sounded like on the violin. And but I think yeah, he didn't want me to lose whatever joy I had because I my understanding was that I didn't show show tons of joy in playing. <laughs> so well, that it, that's hard, right? It's like it, it's almost like you don't realize till later. I mean, I mean, I guess you you were 
you were pretty much a prodigy. It's just that you weren't pushed. But as uh, for me as a normal person, I feel like it wasn't until I was much older, maybe my 20s, that I was able to kind of understand why I was learning these things or doing them. And well, I would say the same thing. I think, really. yeah, to, yeah, it's hard to contextualize when you're young. Yeah. I mean, the big, the difference at that age for me, and you've said the same thing, is that the repertoire we were playing. I mean, when you can learn The Happy Farmer in a number of different ways, but if it's Mendelssohn Concerto and eventually Paganini Concerto or something like that, you just, <laughs> the barriers end up getting thrown up. You simply can't play Mendelssohn if you can't if you aren't comfortable in fourth position um or if you can't get up high on the fingerboard you can't play Paganini if you can't play thirds and octaves and a million other ah, things that's where I went wrong <laughs> I mean my fear of so. thirds and octaves and my inability to play Paganini these are actually linked <laughs> so when he I mean if he would sense one of those weaknesses he wouldn't say oh here's a weakness here's what we're going to do about it but you know he would definitely introduce an etude but it was, I mean, he did it better than that. I mean, he would do these things in advance so that I had the skills before we would tackle a certain piece. Well, it's nice. So you had, you kind of had a direct connection. Like he said, this is, this will lead to this. Yeah. I don't know if he would always say it as such, but, but sometimes he would. And he could sense with me. I mean, one of the things, I think if, if somebody told me I could do something, then, you know, I remember thinking, okay, well then of course I can do it. There's no question. I wasn't one of those people, you know, you always hear like, oh, you know, so-and-so was lazy until you told them they couldn't do something and then they would prove everybody wrong. I mean, I, that would not have worked with me. <laughs> like if someone told me you can't do this, I'd be like, oh, wow, I guess I really can't do it. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, so I needed someone to say, okay, this is not a problem. You can do this. So I think he was always careful to make sure that I had the foundation before then just saying, okay, now we're playing this and that's it. Wow. It sounds like, yeah have the right teacher is a is a big deal yeah i mean that's uh, obvious um, but to, to have even kind of on every detailed level like they they have to have a good sense of what what the student responds to yeah for sure to get the best out of anybody and i i always wonder because uh, my parents they did put him under a pretty strict they said we he's not going to practice more than two hours a day unless he is begging for it so you're gonna have to work within that amount of time so don't make, you know, if he stops enjoying playing, we're taking him and giving him to someone else. Because um, I think they knew at that point that there would be a number of people who would be interested in teaching me. And I think they got some flack too, because there, there were other teachers who could have been stricter and just set up a, a big regimen for me to follow. And I, you know, I do wonder about that. I wonder how things would have been different. I, I Well, I mean, from envy... my perspective, I think, you know, yours is... It seems perfect. It seems like you. Well, yeah, I don't think either of us can argue at this point where we ended up. But I, you know, I do envy some of the training you got. Um, not always the context in which you got it. And I, but you can't really separate those two. It's hard with, um, I see with our daughter, she's just starting. And it's like, I can see she doesn't really know why she's doing these things. She doesn't, she oh, doesn't yeah. know why, you know, she doesn't, there's obviously she's only, she's not five yet. She doesn't have a good context into which to, you know, like, well, Hannah, you won't get to play like mom and dad if you don't do, I mean, that's not <laughs> not an incentive. She doesn't really know what we do or want to do it. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's to, to not, to make not extinguishing the joy a priority, I think is, um, I'm not sure you can go wrong with that, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't 
Yeah, no, I that don't was think, not, I don't think you not a priority for for me. So I seeing you <laughs> and seeing our daughter, I think you know I would definitely like to make that a you know the motivating factor. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I don't think you can go wrong. I mean, after all, uh, when we perform, even now, we're supposed to be bringing joy to people. So that's... It's, it's and it's weird, <laughs> you know, when you realize that. I think you perform for so many years, you have no idea why. Or for me, I I didn't know why I was doing it. And I, I really think it wasn't until after I had a job and started playing. I mean, because it always seemed like there was a goal that did not involve joy, you know. Yeah. Getting into school, getting, you know, getting into another school, getting a job. Like, and these are not joyful endeavors. So right. it's it does seem we can talk about, obviously, later, hopefully, about the incompatibility of the seeming incompatibility of music making and achieving these these goals. Yeah. Looking back, it seemed to me I didn't have necessarily the highs or the lows. It was just, it was something I did and something my family did. And that's and a good that, point. That worked, so it's, but... it's not like there's not an emotion connected with getting it done. It's like, it's done. It's the thing that you do. Right? Yeah. And you do your best. And, and that, that was shaken a little bit. You know, a number of things happened around age 15, 16, because that was the time that I really decided for me, yeah, I'm going to do this in school. Um, so not till about that age. Yeah, not till then, because before then, I didn't really travel that much to see other kids playing at my level. Yeah, by the time, you know, 14, 15, yeah, I've been the big fish uh, in my area for a while. So, you know, I'm starting to do music camps in the summer or whatever and and what was the first music camp that you did that was of that nature um madeline island when i was 14 so that was you had private lessons there it was very chamber chamber music was the big focus um but i'm remembering it being four weeks i think it was four not six but yeah in a rural setting looking back great faculty greater than i had a right to expect for my first music camp bill prusel was there but i mean just one of of many great faculty members especially for chamber music so that was my introduction to quartet playing and i loved it mm, wow um and you, sorry you said that was there. all solo and chamber solo chamber and then chamber orchestra chamber string orchestra, orchestra. Okay. so some of that um the next two summers after that well no then i did the one in uh, washington dc where you played basketball with ellen iverson yes ah uh, basketball i played at least as much basketball as violin that, that <laughs> summer um well that yeah that's, that, fun that's to talk i think about, that's one of one of the trivia highlights for you is yes basketball is, uh, with alan iverson that you yes you played on on the court with alan iverson he was terrifying um make no mistake about it um but that was the first time i saw a really high level orchestra on a consistent basis you you played alongside the National Symphony? No, we didn't do a side by side for that, but we saw many of their concerts. Um, that I think was in July or something like that. So we we saw them at Wolf Trap and we saw them at the Kennedy Center with Slatkin, almost always with Slatkin conducting. Wait, am I remembering that right? You know, to be honest, I, I think it was him, but I I can't be a hundred percent sure that summer. That was ninety three. Um, but then that's when I really decided, you know orchestra this is great you know to be to play in a group like this that sounds like this you know that's what I want to do so what what appealed to you about orchestra playing like on an individual level well or... it it was around that time that I did I started getting more nervous for my own playing you know it, it's mattered more to me and 
around that time, I had my first memory slip in public, and that was mm. just, that was so terrible. Do you remember what piece it was? Oh, yeah, Mozart four. Wow. This um, is, I don't think we ever talked about. Oh, really? So, okay, so yeah, yeah, it was in the Asta competition. Um, oh, okay. You did, and it was yeah. so bad that <laughs> I had to stop. I mean... I just, Oof. I couldn't, I didn't know what came next and yeah. I had to go. Check my heart rate right now talking about this. I know. Yeah. And <laughs> just, so I didn't want to play it. anything from memory for like a year after that. Um, but yeah, this was all kind of around that same time. And, and so the concept of really stepping up and delivering, I hadn't ever considered that so much before, but, but at that time I thought, wow, you know, someone who, and I was seeing other kids who were playing big time repertoire and I thought, wow, they really look confident when they get up to play and like you know wow that guy didn't miss anything or oh that guy choked wow um you know these things started meaning something to me and so I remember it was a Dvorak New World Symphony and all the wind players um who were fellow students at that thing you know they were talking about the English horn solo and how so like you know this player had been working on their reeds for two weeks and um you know it's just so like every note is a it's like climbing a mountain and anything could have anything. It could just not come out at all. And when, when they try to play it, you know, it's out of tune and just every note has to be perfect. And how, how could this solo come out even at all? And so sitting there, I remember I was up in a balcony and got to the, the big famous tune in the slow movement. And it just, to my ears, it came out, every note was perfect. And I thought like, after all that, you know, how could they just, when it really counts, how could they just play it? So, and it was beautiful. You know, I had a, a real robot though. I was, I had a, an emotional connection to the, <laughs> to the music. And I thought, wow. And I bet every person on that stage is just like that. You know, every violinist, even the ones in the back, cause I, I'd bombed my seating audition for that, um, <laughs> little camp. And so they put me actually last chair in the yeah. first first of all, I can't imagine you bombing first of all and oh, second of all I yeah, didn't I'd... prepare at all it was oh, well okay that maybe I can no, um <laughs> maybe I can imagine but I can't imagine. um but yeah last chair and so I was thinking maybe just to make myself feel better I was looking at the National Symphony thinking, I bet even the last chair player is amazing there and so I want to be <laughs> in a group like that and you know and sure I thought how oh, my grandpa was in the orchestra and mm -hmm. um, now at that moment I wasn't remember you know thinking of the fact that he after 12 years he was done and wanted out <laughs> but, right um but yeah that that was the time so from about age 15 to 18 I, I wanted to get into conservatory curtis if i could because it was free and that's where my grandpa had gone wow so yeah you've you had some well-defined goals so you wanted to go to curtis and you wanted to become an orchestra player yeah um so at at no point did you consider solo career or um well also around that same time you know, I had no real notion of what that would have looked like. And so I had, there's a wonderful uh, woman and teacher that I would play for in the summers, Marilyn McDonald, um, who's still on faculty at Oberlin. And um, because she and my father played in the same orchestra in the summer, this uh, Peninsula Music Festival in Door County, Wisconsin, I'd get to play for her in the summers. And, you know, at that, around that same time, critical age, 13, 14, 15, at one point she just said, you know, it was one of those sloppy lessons, I guess, where she hadn't heard me in a year and whatever I was playing was fast and loud, but not so well prepared or, you know, not polished, just not finished. And she said something like, you know, look, if, if you were meant to be a soloist, it would have happened already. 
Sorry, how old were you at this point? Uh, probably about 14. Something yeah, like that. Yeah, I started to hear stuff like that around that and, age. And, you know, in the, in the traditional sense, that's absolutely true. It's not, you know, they, they weren't discovering 14-year-olds who came out of nowhere and making CDs at that point. You know, the, at that time especially, it was, you know, you're discovering the 9-year-old, the 10-year-old, the 11-year-old maybe, and they're playing with big orchestras. I was 14 and I'd played one movement of Kavalevsky with a Kentucky orchestra. Um, so, and I hadn't really done any competitions, hadn't played for any big teachers. So yeah, my, maybe, so do you feel that that's maybe the one thing that would have been beneficial to you? Had you, had you been a slightly bigger market? Like if you, you know, made that a priority at a younger age to, to really get to competitions at age 12, 13, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's no way to know because, uh, my parents would have had to push it. My teacher would have had to push it. Yeah. Starting around that nine, 10 age. And then, yeah, I might have done that or I might have quit because I hated it. Sure. Um, so there's, and that I wonder about, I've often wondered about, but I remember that lesson being extremely disheartening. I just, I'd never heard it put that way I because see. my parents would so never. So you remember heard, this, there was a specific lesson at which she was like. Yeah, where she said that and it just really took me aback and I thought, huh, okay, an entire avenue, an entire world has just been closed to me but it wasn't as if you were hoping to do that no not not in a specific way but i just i remember thinking oh okay well if that's true then what you know why am i learning vinyaski concerto or why am i sure. learning these concertos if i'm not meant to play them it just you know and did you also feel like it was being like being told you were never going to be the very best yes at at that time and at that age i thought yeah i'm i'm being she's putting me in a different category now you know, at my age and looking back, I know she was not doing anything of a kind. I mean, that was a motivational tactic. Do you think and, she, she didn't really mean it, in other words? Well, I think she did in a, in, a, in a very specific sense, which is that you... And maybe she took a look at my personality, too, and just said, you know, this is... <laughs> your life is not going to be touring the world playing concertos with orchestras. I don't know. I, and I don't think... Even she could say that with 100% certainty back then. And especially now, people do build solo careers later than they did. But it was it was a motivational tactic, and it took me a little bit of time to recover from. Uh, but then I wondered what she... You know, she went on... She didn't just stop there. I mean, she, she said, you know, the, this way you're playing, the fact that this isn't clean, this isn't really taken care of, these are all the indicators that that this is not who you are. You know, if you were that type of person, you would be taking care of all these things because you'd want them to sound like the recordings do. And which is totally inaccurate. It is totally an accurate and fair thing to say. And I think that, you know, I've struggled with that aspect of my personality since. I mean, I go through perfectionist stages, but also not, as you know. Okay, so that's, oh, that was your 14, you said. Yeah, so I, so I forgot the soloist thing not that I'd ever had a real clear idea of what that was but I sort of doubled down at that point to think okay well if that's not going to be that then I really love playing quartets which I just discovered and then I want to be in an amazing orchestra so you never even considered chamber music as a career well I yeah once I did more of that in school I, I saw friends of mine doing it and that seemed like it would be open to me but I and we'll talk about this in another episode, um, I found it tough to imagine 
the economically and just stability wise I, that I really looked forward to moving to a city, settling down and having a life. And when I saw people doing that in New York and trying to make a go of it, um, it seemed really tough. It just didn't seem like something I could do at that age. And I second guessed that too, because I love playing chamber music so much. We both do. So it's always, I remember from the first, from, from when I first met you, you seemed like a little bit of an outlier in terms of your Curtis classmates who largely wanted chamber and solo careers right yeah we i mean for the string players at curtis it wasn't really talked about back then in the the late 90s to join orchestras you know we we did a lot of orchestra there that's the irony is that orchestra was taken very seriously there um as something you did in school but to actually prepare for orchestra auditions to win orchestra jobs and to talk about the orchestral career in the strings we didn't do that at all there so yeah, when, when we met, which would have been after my first year at Curtis and while you were at Harvard, when we met, even though we were only playing chamber music together, I think that specter of orchestra still was kind of hanging over us. Um, specter in terms of well, oh, the fact that you... The fact that I f- figured that I would do it eventually. And I think, yeah, when we met, part of uh, my difficult personality was feeling like I sort of had to, I was thrashing, fighting against that and sort of trying to prove what a good chamber musician I was. And of course you were, you are, you were and are great at it. So. But I think there was a sense of something to prove back then, which you obviously picked up on. That definitely needs a whole episode. Our first, first interactions with each other at the Taos School of Music. Yes. In New Mexico. But, um, okay. So. Well, that's you... probably a decent place to stop then for now, because we've, taken me to Curtis just as we took you to to Harvard and to the point where we first met <laughs> just to, just to put it use the word context again but imagine there's no way at that point you would have imagined we would be of course not even married but both in orchestra both in the same orchestra <laughs> oh right you uh, you mean when we met at Taos yeah oh, so it's yeah. it's funny to think of from how we got from there to here so, and, and we'll be covering that in later episodes for sure the origin stories are really interesting to look back on because I don't think either of us can honestly remember all those details. You know, they're colored and covered over through so many reminiscences, reminiscences since then. But already casting doubt on, on my eventual account of our meeting. <laughs> That's trying right. to, trying to discredit me in advance. Don't believe anything she says about <laughs> me. Um, no, but I, I feel like, you know, everything from then on, from when we're adults, we can... We were our own agents of change, really. So um, we're making our own decisions at that point. So thank you for the interview. So uh, I did learn. I, did, I learned one thing about you. Oh, what was that? Oh, just about Mozart four. Oh, okay. My first memories. Yes. Ah, that's right. I, I can give you the date and the place. <laughs> um, Cincinnati, 1994. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And again, if you uh, haven't heard our first couple episodes... Those are out as well. And if you take a minute to go to standpartnersforlife.com and subscribe to us, then you'll be able to hear all the episodes as soon as they come out. If you have a chance to leave a rating or even better yet, a review, that will also help us and help more of your friends find this show. So it's been a pleasure having you here. We'll see you next time at Stand Partners for Life.